Welcome to Canadian Defence Focus from CDR Radio, produced by Canadian Defence Review Magazine. This series of podcasts features interviews with leaders and experts in the defence industry, as well as reports and profiles on the very latest in defence technology. Hello and welcome to another edition of the CDR Radio Podcast. I'm James Carlos, Ottawa Bureau Chief with Canadian Defence Review, Canada's leading defence magazine. This time on the CDR Radio Podcast, we're speaking with Alex McPhail, President and CEO of the EXA Consulting Group. Based in Ottawa, EXA's experts help their clients win complex requests for proposals, RFPs for short. They support RFPs worth over $50 million each, including multi-billion dollar contracts. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the CDR Radio Podcast. Thanks very much, James. Uh, it's a delight to be here today. Okay, let's begin. Please tell us about EXA and your work in defense procurement. So EXA was founded about uh, 35 years ago. And as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, we help companies win huge programs in general, usually over $50 million, but often well over that into the billions of dollars. Uh, we generally, but not always, work in the defense area, and we generally, but not always, work in Canada. So we've had clients in France, Germany, and Israel. Um, but uh, we also have had some smaller programs, strategic programs. But as a rule, we help companies win huge programs. And we specialize in, in two areas, uh, capture leadership, which is uh, from very first contact, the, the first moment that you're aware of a program, right up to signing the contract. We help with everything in that process. And inside of that, there's also an element of proposal leadership where we help clients actually develop and write the proposal and submit what we hope is the winning proposal. So that's the bulk of what we do. Now, why is defense contracting becoming more complex and expensive for the defense industry and the federal government these days? So there are a few reasons for that. So let me try to walk through them. Uh, it comes from several areas. Uh, one is that uh, Canada has an inability to follow their own schedules and processes. And this might sound like trivial, but it's it's a big, big problem. So uh, when you have a draft RFP or a, a notice, uh, an intent to procure, and they're saying an RFP is going to come out, and, and when they say an RFP is going to come out in, say, three months, or sometimes they even give a date. So then industry will put together a team. Uh, that team will usually comprise both internal and external people, consultants like EXA, uh, who are supporting their internal team. And they'll stand that team up. They'll take some time to sort out what the solution is, what the strategy is, what the approach will be to, to develop and write and present the proposal on the understanding that the RFP is going to come out at a certain time. And then when Canada suddenly pushes back the RFP by, by a big margin, like they did on RCN ISTAR, um, that was a six-month delay all of a sudden. So now you have an industry uh, member where they're saying, well, what do we do with that? We've stood up a team. We're paying for the team. Uh, we, we can't afford to have this team just standing there doing nothing. Uh, and not only that, of course, the people would hate doing that. The people on the team would get bored very quickly. So those delays, restarts, cancellations, 
they introduce a lot of risk and they introduce a lot of cost to bidders because then when the RFP finally does come out, they have to stand up the team again and they've lost all of the competitive advantage that they might have had if they'd had done that work in advance. Even though the Canada says the RFP is going to come out in, in say, six months, you can't trust that that six months is, is in fact accurate. It might be six, it might be nine, it might be 12, it might be 20. And so uh, what we're seeing among our customers is they're saying, we're not going to put any money into this at all until the final RFP drops. And that takes away the very purpose of having a draft RFP to give industry the opportunity to respond to it, to think about all of their approaches and how they're going to put their, their team together, how they're going to master the strategy. They, they don't want to waste that money because uh, they, they don't know uh, whether that money will go to good use or not. So that's one area. Another area is uh, Canada has, uh, they they seem pretty fixated in their procurement approach. They like buying things and they don't seem to have a lot of flexibility and agility in that procurement process. So for example, we worked on a cybersecurity program uh, not long ago and it was a seven-year program and they want uh fixed pricing at the beginning of the program for seven years. Uh, that That's really difficult to do. Uh, so and anyone who's been involved in cybersecurity knows how quickly the technology evolves. And it's not just the hardware technology, it's the software, it's all the security elements and, and how those things change so quickly. And so it's really difficult to put together a price on that over seven years. But that's what Canada's asking for. So it's hard for industry to think about how they're going to put a firm fixed price on that. How are they going to uh, protect themselves against the risks associated with, with things changing so quickly over a seven-year period? How much risk do they have to put into the price to, to manage that? And it gets a little bit compounded because a lot of the procurement officers know that they only get one shot at this can. Uh, they know that they're going to buy this thing. It's it's going to go for seven years, and then seven years from now they'll do it again. And so they tend to throw everything they can into the requirements, everything that they might think that they might need, uh, whether they need it or not or not. It isn't so much the issue. It's if we don't put it in now, and we discover we need it in four years from now, then we have to go through a contract amendment, and and it becomes more complicated. So let's try to put everything we in, we can think of into the requirements now, and that adds risk to, to the bidders who are looking at that expansive scope of work that, that they're going to have to bid on and ultimately carry out. So another issue that industry has to worry about in terms of risk is obsolescence, especially on, on uh, long-term programs. And there are three big kinds of obsolescence that it has to worry about. There's obviously hardware obsolescence that everyone knows about, you know, a, a product you can't buy the equipment or the components for a product anymore. There's software obsolescence, and we see that all the time, where you can't buy, a, you know, Windows 10 is now Windows 11, and eventually it'll be something else. So there's an obsolescence uh, element to that. But one of the fastest and biggest obsolescence issues is security. And as you know, uh, every computer gets security patches. And, and if you don't, uh, maintain that security element in terms of obsolescence, then your system becomes uh, vulnerable very quickly. Well, if you have 
a seven-year-old system that has hardware obsolescence issues and therefore may have software obsolescence issues. It's guaranteed to have security obsolescence issues. And that's a risk to obviously both the uh, the government client, but also uh, to the industry member who is responsible for providing a service uh, error-free and, and risk-free. So so that's, that's a risk that industry faces. Um, another one that we're seeing increasingly now is pricing in areas like software and cloud computing. Uh, government looks for firm fixed pricing or pricing per year or pricing per month or something like that for the next five, seven, 10 years. And software licensing is now going to a subscription-based license. Anyone who's, who's purchased software recently has realized you pay by the month. And that payment can change uh, depending on what kind of components that you want in the software. And it changes over time anyway, because you know prices go up. And as software versions change, then the prices will change. And in cloud computing, uh, it's, it's usually a user times volume base of pricing. So how many users do you have? And how much a part of the cloud is each user using or how much processing uh, are they using? How much performance operations are they doing per day, per user and those kinds of things. And those things are almost impossible to predict. Um, we've worked on procurements where we put the question into Canada. We say, you've asked for a firm fixed price. So give us an estimate on how many users you're gonna have. What's the volume each user is gonna have over the next seven years? Because you've asked us for pricing over the next seven years and they come back and they say, ah, we don't really know. So that, that's a big risk to industry. Moving on in terms of risks and costs, uh, I'm finding that Canada is demanding more and more details and, and more and more information uh, as time goes on. So on the future air crew training program, the FACT program, uh, they asked for over 10,000 data points and price justification on that bid. Now that's not pricing. That's the price justification. So you, you do the pricing. And then once you've done the pricing, then you have to do a different document that justifies why you put that price in. So imagine doing that 10,000 times and how much that's going to cost you as a bidder to put that kind of documentation together. Uh, another program uh, that we supported was the remote mine hunting and disposal system. It asked for uh, 12 plans for a $40 million program. Uh, that was... Uh, a lot of plans, uh, you know, a systems engineering management plan, a project management for, for a program of that small size. I know $40 million sounds like a lot, but usually uh, that kind of number of plans is reserved for $100 million, $200 million programs. So when they start asking for that, and, and these are plans that the bidder offers for free. It's part of the bid. And then within a year after contract award, Canada will go to the successful bidder, the contractor, and said, okay, now give us those plans again, but but this time under contract. And so all those bidders who put that information in did it for free uh, as part of the bid. And so that's a big cost. And uh, the last area of cost and risk is Canada is getting into the habit now of, of shifting social costs onto industry. So for example, Canada is now requiring defense contractors to support small and medium-sized businesses or employment equity or indigenous participation. These are all noble goals. These are all really good things. And they're things that I personally support and I'm proud to be Canadian because we have a government 
that's promoting this. But they're putting the cost and risk on the backs of the contractors when they do this, because the, the contractors then told, you have to go out and you have to find the SMBs. You have to demonstrate and implement an employment equity program, which they probably should have done anyway. You have to make sure that you have an Indigenous participation program where uh, there probably aren't enough Indigenous companies available to do the kind of work that you're doing, to do the the very high-level uh complex uh, defense-related work. And so you're going to have to find another way to bring those uh, those Indigenous and those SMB uh, organizations into the fold. So those are costs and risks that uh, that we add that you know, industry has to deal with. So I think that's a bit of a, a long answer to your question, but I think it is a bit of a, a mouthful to deal with. It sounds like it. So how can the Canadian defense industry and government mitigate this ever-growing complexity and risk in procurement? So coming back to the first issue, first and foremost, I mean, more than anything else, Canada must become a reliable procurement authority. And by that, I mean that they have to do what they say and say what they do when it comes to timeliness. So when they say an RFP is going to come out in three months or six months or on a specific date, Industry has to have confidence in that. And they can then say, okay, we've got six months before the RFP comes out. The draft RFP is here now. Uh, we're going to ramp up our team. We're going to get them in place. And we're going to really think about what we need to do so that when the final RFP comes out, we hit the ground running. We've got a lot of the base material under our belts. And we've got a lot of the solution development done. And so when the final RFP comes out, we really spend our time writing the elements to the proposal that we couldn't have done before the draft RFP comes out. That's that's one area. And, and that's a really, really big one. When I say it's really big, you can't snap your fingers and just say, okay, from now on, you guys are going to release RFPs. When you say you're going to release RFPs, because there's a whole problem inside of uh, PSPC. There was a CBC news article, I think back in April this year, that said 30% of all procurement positions are unfilled. So that's probably one of the causes. And what we're seeing is the symptom is those delayed RFPs. So it's easier said than done. If Canada wants to be considered a reliable procurement authority, it's, it's got to do that. Uh, another area I think is adaptability. So we have to rethink how we're going to purchase things and what is it that we're purchasing. So when Canada goes out and they purchase, say, a tank or uh, an aircraft or a ship, yeah, they're purchasing some hardware. There's no doubt about that. But increasingly, what they're actually purchasing is a nerve center among a network of networks. So we don't just have a network. We have networks that are connected to networks. And you have a tank or an aircraft or a ship uh, that is connected to one or several of those networks. And we need to understand that that's in part what we're purchasing. Obviously, we're, we're purchasing the tank and the ship and, and the aircraft itself. But uh, more and more, we just have to be aware that that has to be part of the purchasing approach, has to be part of the requirements, have to be part of the thought that goes into what is it that we're purchasing? And when you start thinking about that, you can you can start to realize, yeah, maybe firm fixed price over a seven-year contract doesn't work. Maybe if we had an 18-month contract, 
sure, let's do firm fixed price over 18 months and then see what we get after that. And then, you know, another 18 months, another 18 months. And so more of an agile approach. Uh, that could that could really reduce the risks, not just to industry, but to Canada as well. Because you got to remember that when Canada finally gets a product that they plan to use for the next seven or 10 years, we all know that if it's anything that has a computer or software or cybersecurity in it, it's going to be obsolete before it's delivered. Uh, so Canada looks at this as an in-service support problem, so they just put it into in-service support, which addresses the problem a little bit. But, but not completely. So Canada needs to stop thinking of, of it as purchasing things, and they need to start thinking of more in purchasing services and capabilities uh, that as connected through a center of networks of networks. Uh, second, um, one of the things, and, and, and I know this is probably going to be uh, politically controversial, but the Canadian market is too small to have a competitive procurement on every major program. And so witness the national shipbuilding strategy. So uh, a while ago, Canada finally said, you know what, we can't put everything out to competition every time. The industry was, was crying for this. And uh, we said, listen, we, we can't build a ship and then the next ship go to someone else. And then the next ship go to someone else because the, the shipyards go out of business in, in between builds. So they brought out the National Shipbuilding Strategy, which I think is a good approach to go. So we've got Irving, C-SPAN, and Davey, who, who are the designated uh, NSS uh, shipbuilders. When they have uh, work that they need to do, they subcontract a lot of that out. They don't do it all themselves. So, so when they need a combat system, uh, when, when they need a radar system, when they need any of these, these systems, they subcontract that out. So you can still get competition at the subcontract level. So it's not necessarily everything going to one supplier who is in control of everything. They are basically the systems integrator, if you want to call them that. And their responsibility is to then go out and subcontract everything and put it together. We sort of have developed another, uh, I call those centers of excellence. So, so we have uh, shipbuilding centers of excellence, Irving C-SPAN Davy. We have sort of backed into another center of excellence, and, and that's Talos, because they they won the Aegis contract, uh, I think, around three, four or five years ago. And they just won uh, M-Wave, which is... So Aegis is supporting two fleets, JSS and uh, Joint Support Ship and the Arctic Offshore Patrol Ship. So they, they service both of those fleets. And by just winning M-Wave, which is... Uh, a whole bunch of minor vessels, a fleet of fleets, if you will. Uh, and uh, they've just won that. So Talos is sort of backed into the role of, of being a center of excellence for Navy in-service support. It would seem to me to make sense to just say, okay, we have shipbuilders. Why don't we have ship supporters and have centers of excellence? So take Talos and one other company and just say, okay, from now on, you guys are doing the in-service support for all ships in the Canadian Navy from now forward. That would reduce a lot of the risk that goes on and how you make uh, the market more palatable to the Canadian defense industry and to the Canadian defense customer. And so you could look at other areas like... Uh, Maybe we should have aircraft in-service support. We don't build our own aircraft in Canada, but we do have companies that can service aircraft, and those are usually let out to competitive contract every time. Why do we do that? Uh, 
uh, why don't we have a center of excellence uh, the way we now do for ships and uh, say from now on, whenever you need, uh, you know, an F-35, uh, C-130J, whatever they are, when you need them serviced, you have qualified service centers, you take them in and then they will subcontract what they need to. And I think that we can't just look at government and, and say, you know, you got to do better. I think that industry needs to be more accountable too. And there is a perception by articles that have come out recently that industry isn't uh, holding up its share of, of the equation. And uh, it's really hard to say uh, how much of that is industry's fault and how much of that is government's fault. But what I can tell you is that the competitive nature of the RFP incentivizes industry to say, yeah, that's a problem we'll worry about when we're under contract. So we're not really sure how to do this, or we're not really sure how to cost this, but it, it's something that we'll worry about once we're under contract. So there's a tendency for industry to uh, a little bit over-promise and under-deliver. I don't believe that any of the major companies in, in Canadian defense does it on purpose. I'm not saying that they set out to do that and that, and that they are being dishonest. That's not the case. But uh, sometimes they don't have all of the details and they don't have all of the information. And they'll ask for it. They'll put in a, a, you know, a question and the information they get back isn't enough. Or sometimes Canada says, look, we don't know. Uh, you've asked us, you know, what we're going to do in three years from now. We don't know. And so industry has to make a decision. And so sometimes they'll say, okay, that's a problem we'll deal with once we're under contract and we'll put a little bit of risk money in our, in our bid price and we'll figure it out later. And sometimes that turns out to be a bigger problem than they imagined. And so I'm not saying that it's easy, just as you know, saying do things on time, that's not easy because they've got a, a huge deficit of people. They don't have enough people. It's not easy just to say to industry, look, when you say you do something, do it. Uh, but I think there needs to be a little bit more of a, of a understanding of accountability. Um, and probably uh, if any of what I'm saying is, is making sense, then we have to accept that there have to be significant changes. I think there are more laws, regulations, strategies, policies, departments, agencies, like, like whatever, uh, in procurement than there are in any other government function, possibly with the exception of the criminal justice system. So it's, it's a labyrinth of, of organizations uh, and strategies, policies, regulations inside of defense procurement. So maybe we need to simplify. And, um, you know, there's, there's been a long going discussion about uh, should we have one defense procurement agency and that would be a a way to simplify the problem is i actually think we should have a single defense procurement agency but not now um and and i know i sound like i'm contradicting myself but we are under a massive capitalization program right now in canadian defense we have the canadian surface combatant uh, the Type uh, 26 frigate, which, which we're building, the Future Fighter Capability Program, the F-35 that's replacing the F-18s. We have remotely pilot aircraft system. We have fixed-wing SAR that's coming on board. We've got the Joint Support Ship, which is behind schedule. We've got Arctic uh, Offshore Patrol Ship. I just saw an AOPS in the water two days ago. It had just come out of, uh, of sea trials, and I saw a new one in the water. So um, down here in Halifax. So... 
Um, we have a lot of programs going on right now. Uh, big, each one of those is over a billion dollar program. And it would be a disaster to try to switch over to a, a defense procurement, a single defense procurement agency right now because of all of that capitalization. But I think that we should think about that in the future, about how do we simplify? And if we move forward in this direction, we're going to have fewer companies chasing the same number of programs. So we'll have these qualified centers of excellence, and they will be distributing subcontracted work to everyone else, but there will be fewer winners. So how do the challenges you've enumerated affect industry and their relationship with the government in terms of cooperation and making the procurement process work? So they have had impacts, and I've observed that in in my uh, dealings with with my clients. And I, I should mention that we we deal it you know it stands obvious because we deal with really big programs, but we generally deal with very large companies, uh, multinational companies, as well as Canadian companies. But uh, probably over half of our companies are subsidiaries of large foreign uh, international companies. You know, like. Talos, General Dynamics, like those those really big companies. Uh, we also have Canadian companies, you know, they're CAE, IMP, uh, Davey. Uh, but for the multinational companies, this is what we see. Uh, so a multinational company wants to go after a program. They're going after, say, a, a $2 billion Canadian program. Well, they can't just do it on their own. They've got to actually go to their international headquarters and they have to get authorization to spend Let's say they're going to spend $10 million uh, to go after a $2 billion program. So they need authorization to spend $10 million on, on that program to, to put together the proposal. And increasingly, what they're finding is that their international HQs are saying, hmm, Canadian, eh? When is the RFP actually coming out? Well, we don't know. You know, we, we know when they said it's coming out, but we even we don't believe that. Okay, and what about all of these flow-down requirements of things like uh, small and medium-sized businesses and, and Indigenous participation? Is that going to be part of it? Are we going to have to pay for that too? Yeah, yeah, we think so. And is there a chance that they'll issue an RFP and never a contract? Yes, that has happened in the past. So um, what they're finding is their international headquarters are more reluctant to invest in Canada. And, and that's the bottom line. So when you ask what are the challenges that industry has associated with, with these issues, one of them is that international conglomerates are less interested in investing in Canada when there are alternatives that don't make procurement so hard. So that's that's a, you know, a really big issue. The other thing is that uh, whether you're a Canadian company or an international company, more and more companies are, are waiting until the final RFP comes out, then, then they're starting to, to work hard. That actually makes our job at EXA a lot harder because uh, we like coming in before the final RFP comes out. We help set things up. We get all of the documents ready. We get the teams ready. We get it all going. But when, when they sometimes justifiably wait until the RFP comes out, then they call us and they say, hey, get in here like right now. It's a little bit like trying to build an airplane while you're flying it because you don't have all of those systems and those teams and everything put together the way you, you wish you had. So those are the two big ways that it impacts industry. When it comes to the defense industry, what can Canada do to keep and maintain its competitive status 
and sovereign IP capabilities in the world market? So I think that one of the things that we have to accept is that we may not be uh, as competitive as we think we are. Uh, and there are a few data points that we can point to. And one of them is, is well known and well covered in the media. So the percent of uh, GDP that ban on military is about one point. It's either 1.29 or 1.39, depending on how you calculate it. it. It doesn't matter because we're still around 25th among the, uh, the NATO countries. Uh, so countries like Luxembourg and Slovenia are lower than us, but but you know we're we're not doing very well in in keeping our share of investment that we're making in military, and this is part of NATO. And one of the agreements that you you sign up to when you join NATO is two percent. So we're not anywhere close to two percent, and it probably doesn't help that uh, according to reports. Uh, our prime minister was uh, stateside, uh, I think in Washington, it might have been New York, but I think it was in Washington. He either let it slip or he did it deliberately where he said, we will never meet 2%. And, and that, that's a real problem for our NATO allies because you know we're a fairly wealthy country. Uh, and when we say that we're not going to meet our commitment in an allied organization that we signed up to, that's an issue that gives us pause to accept if our competitive status is what we think it is. And another one is, and not very talked about very much, is what are the number of active people in the forces? And then, so it's it's the, the figures I saw is per thousand population. So 1.9 Canadian uh, are in are an active forces members, 1.9 per thousand. Uh, and that's 29th among our NATO. So I think Luxembourg is lower than us. But Belgium is higher. Croatia is higher. Estonia is higher. You know, Germany is higher. Like everyone else is higher. And so I think that this speaks more to us as a nation than to our government. I hope I'm not, you know, answering at a too high a level here. But I think the real issue is that we as a nation have to take defense more seriously. And we have to be telling our government, this is important. Because, um, you know, when Russia can just walk into Ukraine, uh, the way they have, uh, we have to be aware that that there are potential threats out there that we we really have to, to be mindful of. So uh, if we're going to be competitive, then we need to step up. And so an evidence of us not being competitive there's an alliance uh, called AUKUS. It's the Australia-UK-US alliance. It's a security pact, I should say. I don't think it's an alliance. It's called the AUKUS Security Pact. And, and it's been in the media, and they've been talking about nuclear submarines. So AUKUS is, is to purchase nuclear submarines among these three countries, and Canada isn't invited. Well, that's what the media has been talking about, and nuclear submarines are the shiny object that the media pays attention to. But in fact, there are other things in AUKUS that, in a way, are more important to Canada. So AUKUS uh, includes nuclear submarines, but it also includes cyber, AI, undersea warfare, hypersonic warfare, and electronic warfare. So when you look at cyber, AI, and to some extent, electronic warfare, that's the future. That's the future of defense. And we're on the outside looking in when it comes to our allies. And the reason that we're doing that is because we didn't have anything to provide to the 
the table. We couldn't bring anything to the table in AUKUS, and so we weren't invited. That's kind of a problem. Uh, it's a problem when uh, you're looking at uh, how cyber and AI is going to drive the, the future of warfare. And, uh, and when we don't have access to that collaboration with, with our allies, that's, that's going to be a big issue. So I think to answer your question, Canada and Canadians, not just our government, because our, our deficit uh, in, in the defense procurement has, has been on both sides of, of the political spectrum. Both uh, conservatives and liberals have, have let that language. So I don't think it, you can point to, to one government or the other and say it's their fault. I think it's Canada, Canadians. We have to be mindful of how important defense and security is uh, to, to our nation. This leads to our final question. What will it take for Canada and the Canadian defense industry to be key players in the global defense community, given the problems we have with procurement, uh, NATO funding or lack thereof, and what could be argued the Canadian attitude to let other people defend us a bit? Part of our situation is is just a situation of geography, that we're, we're neighbors of the, uh, the largest NATO force on the planet. And, and so I think we have a little bit of a lack of days approach to defense. But anyway, to answer your question, first, refer to the earlier answer. We, you know, we, we have a Canadian population that doesn't look at defense and security as closely as uh, a lot of our allied countries do. It's also worth noting that Canada has some really significant challenges and obligations. We have the longest coastline in the world. Uh, and so that has, you know, a significant impact on the Navy. Canada and Russia together, uh, Russia more than us, but the two of us together claim more sovereignty over the Arctic than any other countries. So, and, and the Arctic is warming up. So, you know, are we sure we don't want submarines that can monitor the ice pack year round? Like, I, I don't want to get into that, but, but it, it's something that the, the fact that the Arctic and we now have Arctic offshore patrol ships to, to do sovereignty up there. Um, it, it, it's an issue where it's one of the factors that, that we isn't necessarily unique to Canada, but it's a challenge that Canada faces. We're members of NORAD, NATO, UN, and Five Eyes. So we're, so we're members of those four organizations, and that draws a lot of resources uh, that, that we have to provide. And, as, you know, as everyone knows, we've been part of allied operations, uh, Afghanistan, Gulf War II. And we've had a lot of domestic operations. So the Oka crisis way back, the, uh, the Alberta floods, uh, those kinds of things. So I, I think that um, the challenges to the Canadian Armed Forces is vast and complex. Uh, so that's the first thing that we have to understand when we're saying, how are we going to make things better? I said earlier that, you know, there are going to be winners and losers uh, in industry um, when, when you have these centers of excellence. So I think we honestly have to ask ourselves, can, we, can a middle power like Canada operate a fully capable armed forces in all the branches? Is it possible to do? Uh, I think the answer is yes. I think that's exactly what Australia is doing. They're not part of NATO, but Australia has an air force comparable to Canada. They have a Navy comparable to Canada and they have land forces comparable to Canada. Uh, 
and and their budget, their defense budget is very, very close to Canada. The difference is Australia has two thirds the population of Canada. So they're spending a lot more per person than Canada is. So if we want to be fully capable in all armed forces and all branches, we really have to increase our budget by about 50%. Uh, if, if we want to be like an Australia who is invited to AUKUS. Um, and, and to do that, we either have to have massive cuts in other social programs or massive deficit spending or a little bit of both. And I don't see how um, that's palatable to the Canadian political, social, economic balance. Like I, I, I just don't see that happening anytime soon. So, you know, if, if that's the case, then, uh, then look at the alternative. If we can't, be a middle power with a fully capable armed forces in all branches, then should we have winners and losers in those branches? We've got Navy, Air Force, Army, special ops, cyber, and artificial intelligence. I, I guess that's not really a branch, but certainly cyber is now a branch of the forces. Um, should we ask ourselves, can we continue to try to be a world power in all of those? Or should we do more in special ops? Should we do more in Navy? And I'm not suggesting I have any answers to this. And, and I know that this is, is a loaded question. And, and you know, it'll, it'll set off some, some bombs if, if you start talking about this in, in the public forum. But uh, I think it's the kind of challenge that we as Canadians have to accept. We want to have the full capability across all of the branches, or do we want to pick and choose what our branches are? And if we don't make this decision, by the way, if we don't increase our funding significantly in order to have all the branches working full speed, uh, or if we don't start picking winners and losers, the decisions will start being made for us, exactly as AUKUS has been done. So the AUKUS decision was made for us. And uh, there was a, uh, an AUKUS demonstration uh, earlier this year. It was really cool. Um, they had these drones, which were mostly just uh, commercial drones. And they, I don't know, they had hundreds of them. And, and they had special AI software that was, um, that was controlling all the drones. So the drones weren't, there's nothing special about the drones, except they had a little bit of software in them to connect with the AI. But the AI was getting all the drones to sort of think with one brain, if, if you want to use that. So you know how a I don't know if you've ever seen a swarm of sandpipers take off uh, uh, off of a, of a sandbar. It's kind of a beautiful thing to see. And they all turn in the same direction exactly at the same time. So these drones, you know, can kind of do that. And one of the interesting things about this, this program is that they demonstrated through this program back earlier this year that they were able to detect otherwise completely undetectable military targets through this swarm of drones. And that was an AUKUS program that we don't have access to. So we don't have access to that AI technology that Australia has, that the UK has, and that the US has because they're sharing it through AUKUS. So that's what I mean when I say these decisions are going to be made for us uh, if, if we don't bite the bullet and decide to make some really tough calls. Okay. Well, Alex, thank you for joining me today. It was my pleasure, uh, and I hope we, I hope that we had an interesting discussion that may have uh, uh, provoked a little discussion. I think we did. I definitely think we did.
You've been listening to the latest in the CDR Radio podcast series. They are produced by Canadian Defence Review, Canada's leading defence magazine. I've been speaking with Alex McPhail, President and CEO of the EXA Consulting Group. To hear more CDR Radio podcasts, go to CanadianDefenseReview.com or find us on iTunes and Google Play under CDR Radio. I'm James Careless. Thank you for listening to the CDR Radio podcast. Talk to you again next time. Tune in next time for another Canadian Defence Focus podcast from CDR Radio.